Hello, welcome to Conversations in Calvinism. I'm Dan Chapa, and I'm joined by, as always, by Turin Fan. I'm thrown off because I'm on the wrong side of the uh, uh, StreamYard presentation here. Ah, there we go. Ah, <laughs> yes. Welcome back. Yeah, um, that's, this is as it should be. Um, no, I don't know. This is a minor thing, but uh, how you doing, Turin Fan? Doing great. Thanks be to God. I am doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, doing real good. So uh, today, I guess the topic is dispensationalism. Um, we may be joined by Jamie. We'll, we will see. Um, but either way, we can ch- chat about dispensationalism a little bit. It's a, a, an enormous topic, um, to say the, the least. Um, so I scratch my head as to where exactly to start, but um, I thought the best place to start would be the, the Abrahamic Covenant, because I think that is the the foundation piece for dispensationalism, and then we can maybe go from there. But uh, we can start with the Abrahamic Covenant, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. All right. I, up front, for the viewers who are less familiar, I am not yeah. a dispensational theologian of really any kind. I'm a covenantal theologian. I hold to, I think Witsi is, is an uh like person I usually recommend folks go and read. And that's sort of where I stand. I'm a partial preterist. Oh, I see we have comments already coming in. Uh, Slam is asking, which Jamie? Uh, Jamie Jamie Russell. And the answer is? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Uh, (laughs) Because he goes by different (laughs) last names. Like when he comments on here, he's uh, different. I think it's like the... Guy, guy that has like the Middle Earth, uh, uh yeah. J- Jamie Middle Earth. So, whatever, yeah, if yeah, that's Jamie yeah. Russell, then that's Jamie Russell. If not, then not. So, um, uh, I think it, I think his last name is Rain King, but I'm not sure. I, you know, we can ask him, or if he wants to remain uh, anonymous, that's that's certainly fine. He can just be uh, just <laughs> too, late, too late. Too late <laughs> if he was trying to do that, you just accidentally doxed him. I guess if that's oh, no, no, no. No, no, we, no. He definitely goes by that. He's just. Oh, I, see. I don't know okay. if he. Yeah, like I don't know if Rain King is his right is his actual name. I, I just. Don't I know. see. I see what you're saying. It could be yeah. like Francis Turretin. Some rascal is using that name, and it's not actually. Oh, more than that. Caric- the caricature of Calvinism. The uh, the dancing bear, James White's dancing bear, is the yeah. the most recent insult yeah. that I've I found amusing. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I've been having some fun interaction. I mean, fun is a little bit in air, air quotes, but I've been having some fun interaction with uh, Leighton Flowers and some of his followers through Twitter. So there's a limit to how much you can really go into depth on Twitter, in my opinion. You kind of have a chance to like throw one idea with a tiny oh. bit of nuance, and that's it. <laughs> 140 characters worth of the word of God. Yep, that's right. I I want to say that I'm up. I got up to that two. Was it 220 now? Oh, you 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 big time now, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I I should get on Twitter. I you know okay. I am on Twitter, but I'm a hundred percent Dallas Cowboys focused on Twitter. That's like the fastest way to find out what's going on with the Cowboys. Oh, somebody asked that in the YouTube. Uh, and uh, Sam is asking, are you guys Young Earth Creation? And 
the guess is that I am and you're not, Dan. What do you what do you say? Do you, do you want to comment <laughs> on it or you don't have <laughs> that's to? A great, that's a great question. Uh, I have no inkling. So um, I, I think the, it's probably it, just from an exegetical standpoint, it's more likely than not that young earth is true. I mean, I guess like if you go with Unger's dating and stuff like that, that 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 uh, works out. Um, there's so many times when um, there could potentially be a gap that, you know, there's no way to know. I'm very, very much adamantly opposed to any type of evolution. Uh, well, I mean, I guess um, macro evolution, I suppose I should qualify. Um, you know, there's no way, we, you know, we came from fish. I obviously believe the historical account of uh, Adam and Eve, that sort of thing. Whether there's a gap in there somewhere, um, I can't say for sure. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Jamie, not a problem. Uh, see you soon. Um, so I'm, I'm absolutely opposed to evolution, but it's, it seems pretty clear to me either there's an, um, an appearance of age, which is frankly right there in the text of scripture, right? Like God made the, um, the fruit with the seed in it, right? Well, like if you follow back the natural process, you say, oh, well, it takes a month to get from the fruit to the seed or the seed to the fruit. And which came first, the seed or the fruit? Not both, same time. So God had created everything with it, with an appearance of age in that whatever he created at that day, you could backtrack the natural cycle and think it took longer than that, including Adam, who could talk. And you would normally think he had parents and it took him a while to learn to talk. But no, he could talk. So God created things with an appearance of age. Now, whether, um, you know, let's take, for example, the light from the stars. Um, so it specifically says that God created the stars with light so that we could see them. Um, so, you know, maybe that's just an appearance of age things or, you know, maybe it's been that long and it's just taken that long for light to have reached the earth. I don't think so. I don't think that's necessary. I just, I think maybe God just created it. And so the earth might be just 10,000 years old or whatever. But um, I mean, I, I don't think it's a slam dunk like the case against macroevolution um, based on exegesis of scripture. Um, but I think it's more likely than not that the earth is just young. Anyways, before uh, that was a bit of a rant uh, before, before we go on, I just want to say, Hey, Jamie, how you doing? Good guys. I feel uh, so honored to talk with you. So yeah, good to see you. Nice talking with you too. To, uh, to wrap up the question that Slam was asking, I, my only objection is I like, to, I like to say it this way, that I think the earth is very old, extremely old, thousands of years old. There's nothing that we've ever seen that's older than that. So, uh, but thousands of years, not millions of years or billions of years or, or more. And I won't be surprised if we see an update in our lifetime of the age of the universe to make it more than 13 point, whatever the current number is, billions of years old in order to accommodate some new problem with fitting the entire uh, naturalistically uh, extrapolated age of the earth. So I don't, I, I have, I regard, you know, if I see something that says this fossil is 15 million years old, I, I don't necessarily have a dogmatic stance that 
they've done the math wrong or that they've done the science wrong. Or I certainly don't think they're just lying because that they know it's not that old and are pretending it, but I don't, uh, I don't believe that any of those things are that old. So, uh, the, so 60, so it's, hold on. It says 76 quadrillion tons of biomass deposits were deposited in mere 10 thousands of years. Uh, I don't know if there's a reference to oil or coal or something like that, but I don't, if that's what it is, I don't, I, I actually was, in, I was interested to note some recent stu studies suggesting that they are not of, uh, they're not formed, the, not necessarily formed that way. So in any event, uh, I do believe there was a global flood and that that's the most reasonable explanation for the huge, I like the way that Kenaham put it, billions of dead things buried, uh, buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth, including uh, what appears to be uh, sedimentary rock at near the top of Everest. So uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not, I'm not swayed by the counter arguments, but Donnie has a great channel to standing for truth where he goes into a lot of those arguments there. And uh, for the moment, I'm kind of content to let Donnie and a number of others there handle that debate. Uh, but oh, yeah, that's a good answer. She that's a tough one. I want to see the data on that though. I hear that all the time, but I never get to see the data. I think that would be good to show like exactly like, illustrate how that is. It seems impossible in a young earth, but I don't know how much that really is. It sounds like a lot. Right. And I would, I mean, I, to what, uh, to that point, I, something like uh, limestone, for example, if the limestone was formed the way limestone can be formed, if all of the limestone we have was formed that way, that would imply something about the age of the earth. But again, we don't know the, ex the initial conditions that earth was created with where was there a lot of limestone or was there not very much limestone and some people speculate i don't take a firm position on this about whether the fossils are uh, actually dead things that are in those rock layers or not but you know my my guess is that they are and that a lot of that was laid down during the great flood but that's more of a speculation than a dogmatic view uh, but anyway, I, I don't want to get the whole, I don't want to turn this whole thing, which is supposed to be about dispensational uh, theology, uh, which I'm more of someone learning about it as opposed to someone holding it into too much sidetracked. But I do appreciate the question and uh, I'll kind of mute myself and actually put you and Jamie up top here uh, just so you guys can have the conversation. I'll try to ask some questions if I can think of it, something intelligent to ask, but I'll kind of leave it to you guys to, to discuss. Cool. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here I can I can bring my screen in actually here this way. Oh, um, here let me add that to the stream. Dan, do you okay. do you consider yourself a dispensationalist or partially or anything like that or no? I am a dispensationalist. I mean, to be honest, I've only read a couple books on the subject. Um, in fact, uh, I think um, about a year ago I was going through it a little bit, and I, so I started digging into. Um, what passages I thought might support dispensationalism. And so I just um, put them in my uh, blog, which is basically just um, 
if, if this was Harry Potter, it's like my pensive. I mean, it's it's almost a journal rather than a blog. But in any case, it it, it contains scattered thoughts. But I just listed out a ton of passages um, and then started organizing them into categories. And so I, I created a, like a verse list of for, on the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, send, where really, I, send me that. Send me that because I I've only been listening to you on YouTube. So you guys, both you guys, and I. So I'm embarrassed to say that I I'm not familiar with that, but I, I'd like to read it. So, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you're certainly welcome to. It's um, it is what it is. But this is just a, like a verse list. So, it uh, it's anyways. Um, but we can go through the passages and just talk them through. Okay. So I think the the starting point before we look at these specific passages, I think the the one of the main questions uh, with regard to the Abrahamic covenant is is it still in place today? Uh, and especially within, with respect to the land grant to the nation of Israel, was it a perpetual land grant? In other words, um, God promised Abraham and his descendants the land. And so is that still the case uh, today or not? And is there a nation of Israel today or not? So a, a lot follows. A lot is going to be based, uh, is going to, flow out of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I don't want to misrepresent um, covenant theology, and I'm far less familiar with it. Every time I uh, interact with covenant theologians, I find out that there's less differences than I ever thought there were. But am I right that on the covenant theology side, that there is no land grant to the nation of Israel as a, you know, um, natural descendants of Abraham, today, not the spiritual descendants, but the natural descendants of Abraham today? Yeah, that's the question, I think. So there's verses that seem to apply. Maybe that that's fulfilled in a certain sense. And uh, so I'm not, I'm actually open to that. So I would just say it's, uh, I know, I don't know if you saw that debate with, uh, with the guy, uh, Aquino and uh, the other Baptist guy, and they were talking that this came up, I think. And I think there's a verse that suggests, like, is that a, something that are fulfilled to have forever? Should it be interpreted through the new covenant? I'm not sure. So I'll just listen to what you have to say about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, um, so happy to, yeah. So happy to look at that. So actually, I don't know, uh, Turton fan, if you, if you have thoughts on that, like from a covenant uh, theology standpoint, do you see a continued promise of the land to Abraham's natural offspring? In a word, no. But it's completely a different system. So, but yeah, but no, I don't. So, okay. So, Right. So, okay. So I think it maybe does make sense to just look at these Abrahamic, uh, the, the passages related to the Abrahamic covenant and see what it says about who the, the, who the land is promised to. Uh, GMW. Oh, um, oh, hey, hey, Charles, how's it going? Uh, good to see you there. And hey, everybody. And GMW asked if I'm on Twitter. So just mentioned that. Okay. So I have a Twitter account. I use it exclusively for the Dallas Cowboys, and it's the fastest way to get Cowboys news. So um, what I need to do is set up a second Twitter account that I use for um, conversations in Calvinism or something like that. Okay. Um, 
So let's uh, let's start with the passages of scripture that talk about the, the land. Now, there's just a, a ton of them, so um, stop me when this uh, this gets too long. Okay, so the first one is Genesis 12, um, 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, or Abram, go to your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the initial promise to Abram. And then let's just keep going through 13 and then 15. Let's see. The Lord said to Abram, uh, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look for the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see i will give to you and to your offspring forever i will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted arise walk through the length and breadth of the land for i will give it to you so i mean i i think we could uh start here and just note that there's a geographic region that God led Abram to. And then Abraham is looking in all geographic directions. And then he says that I'm going to give it to you and your offspring forever. So yeah. that's what I believe. So, so this, I, for me, like I've been reading and, and, and interacting with some people that have different views of dispensational type ideas. And, and uh, I think where I'm kind of coming down to on this issue is, it's really, it kind of comes down to how we interpret in the new covenant, you know, as Paul says, they were an example for us. Like what exactly were they looking to? I think that verse that comes to mind is like when it says, you know, Abraham was a sojourner. And like, should we then imply that God's like hinting at the whole earth, the meek will inherit the earth, those that are become the seed of Abraham. Um, and then the idea that I also have this idea and I'm, I'm kind of looking into it more, but my idea of, of when you're trying to figure out the decree of Daniel and what is the appropriate decree? It seems that part of that is in order for the decree to, to be correct, there has to be the actual Jewish nation under the old covenant has to have jurisdiction uh, to rule the Torah over the land, uh, all the land, uh, to be a fulfillment of that prophecy before Christ comes. And it seems like that at a certain point that happens when the judges are given permission to go back and then they're, they're given the permission to have the death penalty over the quote unquote whole land. And then that's through that period, Messiah comes and then expands it. So that's the question is like, how little, if are you going to take, are you going to insist on a literal one for one? It just those questions are what I have in the back of my head. The, like seems like some of the passages that are associated with the promises of the land to Israel, maybe it, also associated with the New Testament usage of, you know, inheriting the earth and those sorts of ideas. So that's, I don't have much more to say about that than that. It's just, I think it may come down to how we interpret that. Is there two different peoples or is there one in Christ for the whole earth when Christ finally returns? Okay. So taking the last point first, it certainly looks like in Revelation that God is working with the nation of Israel as a nation once again. Um, I'd also point to Romans 11 that seems to indicate that the nation of Israel will return to God near the end, which is also prophesied about in Ezekiel and other places. So um, 
Yeah, Romans yeah. 11 to me seems like the best case to make that separation is a future thing for sure. And that's the one. I, that's why I, I never insist on saying there isn't two separate bodies and how to, how much are they separate is another question too. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I guess, but I, but I would caution this. So, so when, when people talk about dispensationalism, they, there, it is true that one of the first things that comes to mind is eschatology and like timeline charts with, you know, like rapture happens on this, you know, at this point and that sort of thing. I think that's true and important, but it it's also, it starts with what are these covenants that God made and who are they with and what are they for? That's why, that's why, I mean, it's, it is kind of like boiling in the ocean and like you get into complicated issues. Like you said, the D- Daniel 70 weeks, I mean, everyone's got it. it it's a complicated issue, right? Um, there's, there's some, a lot of overlap where we're going to agree on a lot of stuff in, in the Daniel 70 weeks, but perhaps there might be some nuanced differences that we'd have to argue for. Whereas I, I think the Abrahamic covenant is going to, but I think that the two big ones are going to be the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Um, Once, once that foundation is set, then I think it's going to, the the rest will just start to develop on top of that structure, but you have to start. I think you do have to start with these covenants and whether the covenant theology standpoint is the right one or the dispensational standpoint is the right one. And so in ultimately it's going to come down to the hermeneutics, I think of how we interpret these covenants. But I mean, this is just, you know, Genesis 13 right here, right, right on the screen. It says that God is going to give them this physical land to Abraham and his offspring forever. Right. So from a covenant standpoint, theology standpoint, how come the Abraham's physical descendants didn't get this physical land forever? Yeah. And uh, there's almost language in there, verses 14 through 17. You know, and then you get into the thing is, what is the earth? Obviously, it just means the land, I would argue here in in the original context. But like, should we extrapolate that to suggest to be? Like, is the ultimate fulfillment of this when God judges the earth and then the eternal? I mean, I don't know how you guys look at that. My understanding is that there's a restoration of the of a new heavens and a new earth. And so is this looking forward to that? Or should we look at it like uh, some other way? I'm not sure. I mean, I kind of feel like I have a feeling that it seems like it's supposed to be expanded in such a way where this is Jesus is literally applying it to like the whole earth after full restoration. And there's this like Christ is. I don't know how you say it. He's made the payment and we're waiting, right? Already, but not yet sort of thing. I, I don't know how you guys look at that, but um, it's just, yeah, it, I think that it seems to me he's fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant in the first century by bringing the new covenant through Christ. I don't know. Do you agree with that? And then the Davidic thing okay. is going to be established sometime in the millennium or after that. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously Christ is king today. He's, got all authority in heaven and earth he's spiritually the king but he is he you know sitting on the throne of david out you know in jerusalem not today so um yeah i think that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom when when he returns but again again i mean 
I, I, I guess uh, everyone wants to jump to end times and the most complex issues. It has to start with these covenants. That, at least from, okay, I don't know how to build a, uh, I, I, I don't have a different reason for being a dispensationalist other than starting with the way I understand these covenants. Everything else has to follow from there. But that I, I can't I can't start with eschatology. I, I have to start with these covenants. That otherwise I can't build the system. Um, I guess I, I, I'll 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 leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that but I sense. but I honestly think the issue is hermeneutics. It is how do we interpret these covenants? That's the issue. You know, do we take them as literally as possible, or do we spiritualize them all over the place? Yeah, it appears it appears that that's kind of a difficult thing because, well, I mean, I guess you could go to Romans eleven and and then go to like uh, where Paul talks about. Or the question is: Has Paul has? I mean, the seed has come, right? So, the, is are you looking at it like the? It seems to me he ratifies the Sinai covenant by his death, his blood, and then that there's something tied to that with um, that promise, you know, in Isaiah forty two and. You know, the different aspects of that. It seems like Jesus fulfills these things. And then it seems like he's fulfilling that. And then in Galatians, of course, suggests that he's fulfilled the promise to Abraham in Christ. But is that fully realized yet? I mean, how do you look at that part? Galatians 3, right, I think? or I guess I'm okay. curious how you see these different covenants and it, how fulfilled they are or not. Right. So one part of the the Abrahamic promise was that um, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately that uh, um, Abraham would inherit the world, but the through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then later on, and you know, we could keep going, but uh, what's going to happen is that, you know, first he, he's going to be told that he's going to have a son. Then he's going to be, it's going to be specified that his son will be Isaac rather than Ishmael and all that stuff. So there's going to be greater and greater definition to it. But what's going to start coming up is the the issue of the seed and everything like that. And there's a messianic aspect to the, the promise. Not all of it is messianic, right? The, the land grant yeah, I mean, Christ it was naturally a, a Hebrew, a Jew, and so I guess there's some aspect in that. But um, but the you know giving the land to the nation of Israel is not specifically focused on the messianic aspect. It's more just um, a blessing to the nation of Israel that the Messiah would come through. But the messianic aspect of you know that. Um, through you, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed is a reference to the Messiah. And that's what Paul points out later. And um, when Abraham believed that promise of the coming Messiah, um, then he was justified by his faith. So right now at, at, at every step, the promise becomes more clear, right? It's and frankly, it starts in the garden, and but Abraham gets more information than Adam had, and then David gets more information than Abraham had, then Isaiah gets more information than David had, and 
and John the Baptist gets more information than that, and you know, than Mary, and then finally the f the full revelation of is is in Jesus Christ Himself in His death, burial, and resurrection, and then we have the inspiration of the, the epistles of Paul and stuff like that. So there's just more and more light shed on the issue um, as it goes along, but it's the same um, promise, just with more uh, greater light over time. Um, but it started at the garden. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the like, crushing, crushing of the, the, the serpent's head. Yeah. I, so yeah. The way I said, you said some things yesterday. I thought I really appreciated the way you were saying it to discerner. I would say like, I agree. I was like, wow. Like that's a lot of stuff I would say that I would recognize and think a lot of people seem to miss about this is like God, they sinned and right away God starts introducing the sacrificial system with like a flavor of like hinting at like the need for it to be righteousness by faith. Like you have to trust me in repentance and that I'll take your sin away. And you see that with them clothing them with the, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves and God's like, no, God comes down and puts skins on them, which implies a sacrifice. And then with Cain and Abel and then with Abraham, you know, and he's like, I'll provide the sacrifice. And then he, and then he takes them by the hand out of Egypt, you know, this sort of thing. And so he's like, he's already developing what he's looking to do to redeem the entire world before he establishes the Sinai covenant. And then he's calling Abraham and makes promises to him and his offspring because Christ would come through him. And then, so it's like, you, it's like God gave them a job to do. And it's like, he knew they were, knew they wouldn't quite be able to do it. Like, that's how I look at it in such a way that like take God's ways to the nations. But ultimately he knew that like, Christ would have to come and like do it. But the whole time he's telling them, you know, you get a, you got to put your trust that I'm going to deal with this. You know, you can't do it your own way. So from that framework, just like depends on how much emphasis you want to put on it, like for needing it to be fulfilled. But it seems to me, I have my, the question is how much are you separating the two people of God? And I know when I talk to dispensationalists on different levels, they always end up saying, well, it's all through Christ. And of course we all believe that. So, and then people make their cases about, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about that. I, I I would say the promises to Abraham are just a type of the whole earth for those who are redeemed, I guess is how I would look at it. That's all I could say about it. And so that hasn't been realized, but it's promised and that's the blessed hope, right? The return of Christ sort of uh, idea. But I was curious when you said revelation, what exactly in revelation do you think suggests that it must be a, uh, nation of israel i don't know how to make the distinction for sure the the physical you know nation of israel or the descendants of abraham sort of thing the, the, the as well the, <laughs> how to define that exactly the references to the, to the 12 tribes i mean is in the i guess what is it the um 144 uh, 4, 000, that sort of thing it's, it seems like it's talking about the nation of israel at that point um there might be other places but that's the first thing that comes to mind that's um yeah, specifically related to the, the nation of Israel. They're mentioned um, twice, I think. I think it's brought up twice, like Revelation 6, maybe 13 or 14. It's mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, so, but yeah, I mean, so th I mean, this is my method, right? So, I mean, I, I won't re read all these verses, but, you know, I start with that promise of the land forever. Then I start looking at all the different references to the Abrahamic covenant in the giving of the land. And he says it again, and he says it again, and he says it to Isaac. And then he says it later to Abraham. And then, you know, uh, it said 
uh, in Exodus, and then it's said in Leviticus, and it's said in Deuteronomy, then it's said in Second Kings, and it's said in Nehemiah, and then it's said in the prophets, Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like it just keeps going and going and going. And it looks like there's continuity into the New Testament. But, you know, that's the way, that's where I'm getting this idea from. Is just by tracing this promise of the land to the nation of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant and how it was dealt with um, scripture, step by step by step, just going chronologically through scripture. Uh, um, you know, I mean, like this is an interesting one. Um, so Acts 1, 6 through 7, so that when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. Right. So, you know, it it doesn't it, it's not a slam dunk in and of itself. But when you look at it in combination of, well, there's 15 different references to this thing step by step by step throughout the Old Testament leading up to this point. It really does sort of make sense that that's what he's talking about. But anyway, um, that's my that's my method. Acts one. So, just so you know where I'm coming from, I um, I think my theology as a Seventh Day Adventist theology, it's like it's similar to the reformers, but then it kind of breaks free. It's uh, being uh, it's not futurism; it's historicism, right? So, my understanding would be that that one in Acts one there would be something like I expect that to be. You know what we see in Revelation, where like the New Jerusalem. I actually believe there'll be a kingdom in Jerusalem with Christ on a throne on a restored earth, and I have a different picture of how that all plays out. But I do take that to be something that's actually going to happen. I expect that to happen. Um, I would just say it's all it's all entwined with a expansion. I don't look at the church as like a separate thing. I would say it's more of an expansion to take the way of God to the nations, to call the nations back to God. And so it's like, so I wouldn't separate it, but I would say I would take that fairly literally, I suppose. And so it's just interesting that he says it's not at this time for you to know. Like, is there ever a time for us to know? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, if 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 what he meant is the kingdom of God is already here and in full effect and we are in the millennium today, that's an odd answer on Christ's part, if that's what he thought. Now, you know, I'm not going to put... Um, words in Christ's mouth, but yeah, I guess that's, uh, he's, the, man, they, if, if that, if that was the case, if the kingdom was full in a full effect from the resurrection forward, the, the apostles themselves didn't get it. <laughs> they, they thought of it the way it's taught in the old Testament. They yeah. still thought of it that way. I, I, this is where I think I'm going to depart from more of the classical reformed. My mind's kind of like, I guess you could say it's a hybrid. But I don't put everything at the end like most futurists would or whatever. But I would say uh, it's an interesting, I call just some verses that come to mind would be something like Jesus says, the, or does he say, like, the kingdom of God uh, comes without sight or something like that, or, or the kingdom of God is within you. And then he, at other times he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> or because if, if, if it were my, my uh, people would fight for me and you wouldn't be able to, you know, do what you're doing to me. And so and it's like, or you see it comes without sight. But then Jesus says, you know, he's going to come with his, with his kingdom, like in 1 Corinthians 15, yet it, and it says every eye shall see. So how do you put those together? Those are interesting questions. seems to me we're going to probably agree that it's a future event that Christ establishes on the earth himself in some way. 
Yeah, so I, I certainly don't doubt that it's a both and. Like there's a, there is a sense in which Christ, there was not just a sense, Christ is king. Christ is king now. He's just not physically in Jerusalem sitting on the throne of David now. Um, but he's spiritually our king for sure. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Anyways, um, Turn Fan, I, I was wondering what you uh, made of this so far. Well, I mean, I, I come from, obviously, I come from a very different, uh, you know, take on these. If, you're, if your question is, where do we see a clear statement about the loss of land? I, I mean, I would typically, a play, one example of a place I would go to would be something like Luke 20. Uh, if you're talking about where would I go in general, or what would be the, like kind of my my biggest concern with a dispensational interpretation of uh, scripture, it would probably be more about Daniel's weeks as opposed to the issue of the land promises. But you know that's sort of. Um, I guess. I guess. How do you interpret this Genesis 13 text? Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a lot there. You, which which part of you, what's the aspect of it that you want to focus on? Okay. So the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Okay. So there's a physical plot of land where... It has a geographic footprint. Later on, of course, we know what the actual boundaries are when they conquer the land and everything like that. And it's get, and they didn't even conquer the full full boundaries, right? But anyways, like the the, the boundaries are defined, but they don't actually uh, occupy the whole thing. But anyways, long story short, there's a plot of land with physical boundaries that seems to be given to Abram and his offspring forever. Now. You're, if I understood you earlier on, you were saying, oh, it's not Israel's now. God didn't give that to them, that physical plot of land. Today, well, it's not theirs by divine right. Well, so there's, there's a few different things mixed in there. So there's one thing, whether, whether it's theirs right now and what type of, uh, what's their, you know, right in that land that they current there there's a nation of israel in the land right now i, I think that should be obvious to anyone who knows who's familiar with world events so i'm not saying that the, that country doesn't exist or that it doesn't have any right to be there or that it hasn't met the conditions for you know autonomy as a country or anything or that it's illegitimate or anything like that i'm not saying any of those things i am uh, gotcha, what gotcha. I, so what I am saying, though, is that this promise of, uh, of perpetual ownership of the land is for, has been forfeited. This promise has been forfeited. So their basis for having that land now is not on the basis of this promise. It's on, it, there are other reasons why that's their land, but not this promise. Because And if this promise meant that they're going to have this land always then it doesn't make that doesn't make much sense since they were 
first of all, there was the they were taken away by the captivity for one. I mean, that already there was a break there, and then again they were destroyed when the when the Romans came through and wiped them out. Right. So okay. So let me make sure I understand your position. Though, are you saying that the land grant aspect of the Abrahamic covenant was conditional? Yes. Ah. Okay. So I don't think it was conditional. Um, well, there's reasons to think it's not conditional, but I think I have a nuanced difference here. I would. I think the best way to see it would be something like. The promise to Abraham was not conditional, right? Because I think Paul says that. But there's almost hints in that language that, like, if it is a type uh, of Israel, the promised land is a type of, like, you know, uh, going to going into the eternal estate or the restored earth. Then ultimately, it's it's not for you could say it's not forfeit, but it's it's a type of those who inherit the earth through Christ, which includes all people. Because if you say it's got to be a literal fulfillment, then isn't it, I mean, like, what does that even mean? Like, does that mean in, no Israel individually, every Israelite has to uh, get the land and live forever in it? Or is like, who are the elect in that sense? That, that gets difficult from here. How do you define, aren't we all related to Abraham at this point? Like things like that, it seems difficult to like define. And rather if it's a spiritual type for the whole earth in Christ, including all people of God's covenant in time, that seems like... I don't know. Sorry to interrupt. That's kind no, of okay. So if uh, if I heard your question, so yeah, so how do we define the elect? So elect is uh, just means chosen. So it, you know, it depends on the context in the Old Testament, especially. You're going to see primarily the election of the nation of Israel to a certain privileged relationship with God, as their he was their God and they were his people. And there was national blessings provided to the nation of Israel, including some big ones like the giving of the law and that the Messiah would come through their lineage and that salvation was of the Jews and many other very important things. Um, but it wasn't uh, eternal life per se. There were, um, there were Jews that um, were unbelievers. And so because they did not believe like Abraham believed, they were not um, justified by faith. Um, in the New so Testament, you have a. Are you saying it's a corporate, pro- a corporate promise then, or something like that? Would you say, or? Well, I guess so. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the right picture. That it's 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 certainly given to the group of uh, the descendants of Abraham. Um, but the in the New Testament, then election takes on a different sense. At least in in some contexts, you're going to get into election to salvation. And that is, um, you know, uh, it, it is a slight, it's a different context and a different uh, subject. There, um, like in Ephesians 1, for, for example, that's not talking about, you know, the land. It's talking about eternal life. Um, so those are different. Um, at least that's the way. I look at it. Okay. So, but going back to the the passage in Genesis 13, if I understood correctly, here's the nuanced difference that I would make, I guess. So I agree that possession of the land or enjoyment of the land um, is conditional. And that was revoked at some times, um, but not the grant, the land grant itself. So uh, let's say, for example, like my, my, 
house. Okay. So even if I'm not home, even if I, you know, like, you know, am away for a month or whatever, even if squatters come and sit in my house, I have the deed. It's mine. I own it. I just don't have possession and I can't enjoy it. So the possession and enjoyment, yeah, that's conditional. Um, but the ownership of the land is unilaterally given by God to the nation of Israel forever with no conditions, no strings attached. Yeah, that's okay. interesting. I'm not sure how you, how you how you could ever know that that was fulfilled at this point. Like, what will qualify you to be an Israelite to say that you have the land, like the ownership? Like, I, is it a genetic test? I mean, and I don't mean yes. to be obtuse yes. about it. I would say it seems that, like, if it's corporate, you could say, I, so I expect, is because there's, there's so many places you could go with this. Like, what is the Israel of God then? And like, what is spiritual Israel? And how should we look at those terms in Romans 11? And he does seem to make a separation and make these separated groups. But you could also argue that spiritual Israel, all the Gentiles coming in to spiritual Israel is the expanded Israel, the bigger picture Israel, which includes descendants of Abraham that were in the covenant with God. And then now those in Christ, I tend to look at it that way. And so, you know, and then Christ ruling from there, how do you become part of the corporate Israel in that sense? That's, that's through faith, but through faith, those are the those that are of the faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, right? So, but so that's how you join the spiritual Israel. But even in the passages that that distinguish the two, so the like the first half of Romans nine, Paul talks about his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. They're given um, the law and the promises and the patriarchs and the covenants, and um, you know through them came the Messiah. So he's recognizing that there's a nation of Israel. And he's even calling them his brethren and his kinsmen according to the flesh. So he, you know, he absolutely agrees that there. He he understands that there's a nation of Israel. It's yeah. just he's he's saying that there's something else too. It's not. Um, and when it comes to salvation, what's not important is that biological connection and uh, descendant descendancy from Abraham, but the spiritual connection of believing. Um, as Abraham believed and being justified by faith, just like Abraham was. Is there a verse, isn't there a verse that says like, no one will be off of the throne of David. Like God promises that, like, how do you interpret that? How should we interpret that in a more literal, how can we interpret it in a literal sense? We can't, can we? Cause it's just not the case that, the, that like, how do we look, how do we make that true in the sense of, isn't there a verse that says something like, you know, there'll be a, David's David's son will sit on the throne forever, which is ultimately Christ. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's a line, but yeah, it's ultimately Christ, and That's he not, will sit on the throne literally, right? I mean, or can it? How do you look at that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he's going to literally sit in Jerusalem on the throne of David. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I guess it's just, you. I guess you're not a thousand years. It's not succession from that time till forever. Now it's just eventually then it will be forever kind of thing. That's how you're hearing that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so I hang on. I actually think I have some, some information on the Davidic covenant. Hang on. Let me pull that up. I guess that, that verse always sounded to me like it's saying your descendants and then it's focused on one. That's obviously we take to be Christ, but like just literal reading sounds like it's saying just like there'll be descendants of David on the throne ongoing into forever sort of thing. But 
maybe I'm reading it wrong. Well, let's let's see what it says. I'm trying to remember the details myself. So 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus, uh, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus is the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my is for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Um, when your days have fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquities, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of men, uh, stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay. Now, the complexity, I guess, is that, you know, in, in, in part of this is talking about Saul. But it seems to go, I'm sorry, Samuel. Uh, no, Solomon. Part of this sounds like it's talking about Solomon. Certainly when it talks about it, he's going to build his house. Definitely when it talks about, you know, I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men when he commits iniquity. The whole iniquity thing, yeah. But the problem is, the you know, this isn't the last reference to the 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 promise to David, and some of the language seems very extreme if it's in reference to Solomon, and it sounds like it's going to be fulfilled through Solomon's line, um, more specifically through the Messiah. Um, so we could go on. Let's see. There's a repetition of it. Um, um, is, I have to. I have to. I have an emergency, you guys. Um, I'll be. I'll be oh. right, right away. Okay, it's an emergency. I, I'm sorry. Gotta be with you, Jamie. Oh, uh, oh, hey, hey. That uh, oh, looks like we got lots of comments coming in. Uh, strict, strict Baptist, Paul, G. Atlas. Um, appreciate you guys. Uh, appreciate you guys commenting. Um, Okay, let's see where where are we at, Turd and Pen. I guess um, I don't know. Um, so actually, Turd and Pen, uh, you mentioned that um, you know somewhere in Luke you saw a place where we have to, um, or I, I guess you you think it, it says that the land was taken away from the nation of Israel. What was the reference again? Luke twenty something. Yeah, Luke twenty nine. Oh, okay, so the man a man planted a vineyard and let out, out to his tenants and went into another country for a long while. So my screen is frozen. I don't know if you can put this on the screen, but I mean I can read it. Oh, oh, wow, it's back. Okay, cool. Um, and at a season he sent the servant uh, to the husbandmen that they should give him the fruit of the vineyard, but the husband beat them and sent him away empty. Uh, and again he sent another servant. They beat him also. And entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third. They wounded him also and cast him out. Uh, 
Um, then said the Lord of the vineyard, what should I do? I will send my beloved son and they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, uh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy the husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. Okay. Uh, okay. So, right. Yeah. So here's the challenge, though. This is the second time this has happened. Go to Isaiah 5, if you don't mind. Because isn't that where it's the exact same uh, parable? And God says the same thing. Like, he's going to take down all the protections and the, the land is going to get taken, right? Just before the exile, the same thing is said. Okay, now I'll sing to my, belo- uh, 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 to my beloved, a song to my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved has the vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it, he gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more in my vineyard that I hadn't done in it? Wherefore, when I looked for, that it should bring forth grapes, it brought, forth, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the walls thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and it will, uh, and I will command the clouds that they should rain up, uh, they should not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, the pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, behold oppression; for righteousness, but behold a cry. Uh, what are them that join the house? Okay. Anyways, the point is, right before the exile, there's very similar language that. All the protections, including like the physical walls that were protecting the the land, would get God would take the walls down and and be destroyed. And they did. They they went into exile. They lost possession of the land. And that is essentially what happened at seventy A.D. as well, right? But so if it happened the first time and then God brought them back, why can't He bring them back a second time? So with God, nothing's impossible. But okay. the the question isn't whether God can or not, but whether he will or not. Ah, right. And, you know, when you look at, I mean, when you look at, play, there's, as someone commented in the G Atlas, commented in there about the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree to never give fruit again. Uh, there's, there's a number of the, uh, there's a number of the threats that, at least appear permanent. And you know, you can point out, I mean, someone could point out that usually God's threats are conditioned on if you don't repent, this will happen. So, I mean, there's that way to look at it. But when you look at, let's say, Deuteronomy 28 as an example of like in in the very same you know Torah that mentions the land promise, you have those curses in, in Deuteronomy 28. And the consequences of disobedience, like verse, verses, you know, starting at verse 15, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And among those are uh, that God is going to destroy them until they're gone from the land. And like verse 25, 
you'll be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, where there's uh, there's many more. I mean, it's it's really shocking to listen to what what he says, but it's uh, all, you know it, it says that there's going they're going to keep coming on them because they didn't obey. And then at verse forty six, and they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder, and upon thy seed forever. Now. Uh, you know, if I'm my concern about it is if you say, well, uh, the for because the word forever is there without a condition in in Genesis. Well, at least in the, in the same, if that's the, that kind of that hermeneutics applied to Deuteronomy 28, there's the same forever without an explicit conditional there. Now, if you're just saying if the nation repented would God give them the land back? And would he bring them more blessings even than they had before? I mean, I, the short answer to that question is, I don't see why God wouldn't do that. He is a merciful God of mercy. He could give, give them those things, but they, haven't, they don't have a right to them by virtue of the promise made to Abraham because they have violated the covenant and therefore they've been cast out. That's my... That's my concern is not uh, now you say it's, you distinguish between some kind of right and uh, and a right to the land versus possession and enjoyment of the land. Uh, but I'm not sure that works if God's the one who removes them from the land. But I don't know. I'm, I'm open to the idea of trying to hear what you have to say about it as opposed to just kind of rejecting it out of hand. But I just don't I'm not seeing that. Uh, that nuanced distinction expressed in scripture. Like, um, Can you add my screen back in? I can't see that. I'm frozen again, but no. maybe. I have yeah. a little tiny bit of power and I'm going to use it to keep you from showing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> can you see yeah. it now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I can't, I can't, I can't see it, but I'll, I'll take your word that it's up there. So, okay. I, I so, promise you a second. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So it's, I'm not basing my entire case on Genesis 13, although it's pretty straightforward. The issue for me is how it's treated throughout the scriptures, not just Genesis 13. So, okay, so we can keep going. Um, so in Genesis 15, um, let's see. Um so this is the one where God cuts the heifer in half. Um, let's see where, yeah, let me just read this, I guess. Um, so, and then the word of the Lord came, thus man shall not, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, look towards the heaven uh, and number the stars. If you're able to number them, he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted for, to him for righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the early Chaldees to give you the land to possess. Okay. So again, there's a land that Abraham is to possess. But he said, Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay. So Abraham, Abram wants to be, or is it Abraham at this point? Um, okay. Well, anyways, he wants to know how he can be certain. Um, 
And he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the bird of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. And the sun was going down, and deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they served, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation to the for the iniquity of the Am Ammonites is not yet complete. And the sun had gone down, and it was dark. And behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a cover covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the rivers of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kentites, Kenites, the Kiznites, Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Rephraim the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so it's a very specific plot of land, and the covenant is so so strong that, you know, basically God is making an oath that he, God himself will be cut in half if he doesn't give them this land. Um, but so I suppose you agree with probably all the references up through Abraham, so maybe it makes sense to, to focus on the stuff after Abraham's time. Um, so I assume you still agree up through Jacob's time when it's being reiterated, I guess. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, you think it's conditional, right? Um, he says it to Joseph. Um, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. So at this point, is it still conditional or do you, do you think it's, it, this is, it's, it's guaranteed at this point? At what point does it become conditional, I guess, is where, where, where I'm asking. <laughs> well, I, I do see a difference between the specific promise with the burning lamp and the smoking furnace and the, 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 more, the broader promise in Genesis 13 in the, in the sense that this thir the 13, the one, the, the, emph the emphasis in 15 is that they're going to be brought back out of Egypt. That, but, you know, if you're, you know, insisting that this is encompassing not only, I mean, it's fair to say it does mention that he's going to give them the land and bring them to the land. So it does mention the land. So, so the, the reason why I'm connecting it directly to the land is verse seven, because he said, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you the land to possess. And then Abram objects. Right. Oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And immediately after that, we get to the, you know, cutting the animals in half. Basically, the, the, the oath that God would be killed himself if he doesn't give him this land. That's why I'm directly connecting it to the land. Yeah, no, I, yes. So I, I appreciate that point. And I'm, I'm not disputing that it's connected to the land. And indeed that it was, I, in this, what's, what's described in this chapter was fulfilled and literally fulfilled 
And even the timing that God told Abraham came to pass just in, in that time when he told him. So that's the, uh, that's the year that they left from Egypt is the year that God promised to Abraham. And everything occurred just as God promised. So I don't have any, my only, the only thing that's not stated in this section is the perpetuity of their possession. So. Okay. Okay. I, th I think I follow your, your point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. So, okay. So then, okay. So maybe what we should look at is stuff after, after Genesis, I guess. Or any other place where it talks about the perpetuity would be helpful. If you. Okay. So yeah, here, here's, here's an Exodus reference. So this is after the Exodus. Um, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have promised I will give to you and your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Uh, Leviticus. Okay, this is Nehemiah's time. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its riches yield goes to the kings who you set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock. We are great distress. Hmm. Okay. Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and call from the furthest corner, saying, you are my servant. I have chosen you and will not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I will hold you with my, my, the right, uh, my righteous right hand. Um, okay, Jeremiah 30, 30, I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Can I pause you there for a moment? Because I think that's an important point. Okay. That, uh, the, the gift there uh, was to their father. The, I'll bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers. And they'll take possession of it. Now, I know you, you made a distinction between possession and ownership, one I'm not sure I buy into, but I recognize that distinction. So maybe in your in your understanding, they never ceased to have the land in in some other sense, like a deed to the land while they're in captivity. But I do see Jeremiah 30 as recognizing, and I can't remember the timing, but if I recall correctly, this was done before the captivity or before the final captivity that uh, that Jeremiah declares this, and ultimately he says, when they come, leave the city, don't fight, and go into cap you know go enter into slavery, but you, that way you'll live. Otherwise, if you fight, you'll die. That if I remember correctly, I'm I'm paraphrasing a bit, but something like that. And 
Yet, nevertheless, Jeremiah also offers this hope that after the captivity, they're going to return to the land. But my my take on that is that during the 70 years, it's not their land. But then they return to it, the same land that God had given to Abraham, but that they had lost through disobedience. That's that's my take on it. But maybe maybe you and I just have a very different understanding of that. Why is he giving it back? Let's say you're right for the sake of discussion. Let's say you're right. Why is he giving it back to them? If they don't have, if there's not some lingering connection between them and the land. Well, it seems like he's, he seems like he's restoring what was theirs originally. I haven't, I, I mean, my, my major premise on, on the, the motivation for God restoring the people there is because there's a lot of, there were a lot of unfinished things especially the messiah jesus christ was coming he was going to be coming he needed he was going to be born in bethlehem he was going to be killed uh outside jerusalem he was going you know he was going to go down into egypt and come back and a lot of these things depend on the people of israel being there not being in babylon okay yeah i mean so there's unfinished business i guess so to speak so in, in that case, I guess, well, so it is important that, that they have the land. So for even in your perspective, right? But is he doing it based on the covenant that he originally made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Um, uh, right. It says, uh, uh, I, you know, whether he's doing that, well, I don't know. I, I don't recall scripture specifically saying that, that it, the reason for restoring them was a promise to Abraham, but it might be that that was one of the motivations. Well, what about that? Like Micah seven twenty, I will show faithfulness to Jacob, right? And steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You will, right? Like, What's the context of that one? Is that talking about the return from captivity? I think not, because Micah's after that, isn't it? Even if he's not, he's still basically claiming the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way in Micah's time. I think that, I mean, isn't that what he, well, okay, well, well, I guess, um, it's certainly if the, if the promises to Abraham, well, if the covenant, if the Abrahamic covenant was no longer in force, this is this would be an odd statement to make. Um, well, well, if it's well, I'm if it's if it said covenant, you know, the covenant, and then it and there was no covenant, that would definitely be confusing. But when it just says mercy and love, it's a little bit more general. That said. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to say that you're wrong about this point. I thought that Micah is post return from exile. He he is, I think. I'm pretty sure he is. Uh, but then the question is whether this is whether this prophecy is written about uh, about the people of Israel or not. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Micah was a prophet to Israel. Um, anyways, um, well, let's see. Oh, wow. <laughs> Time flies when we're having, 
Oh, Jamie's in the uh, in waiting to rejoin. If you want him back in here. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I'm back. I mean, we can probably. I mean, I might need to wrap it up at some point. But yeah, of course. Hey, sorry, Mike. I'm in snow country out here, so I gotta had to help my dad real quick. Um, so something I've been bringing up to people recently about. I think if I just if I'd say much, you'll you'll just think I'm kind of crazy, maybe on some level, but. There's verses like that I put in the private chat, like that are, I'd be curious how you would interpret these, um, which kind of goes with the dispensational view, more literal approach, which I appreciate the literal approach, by the way. I'm a young earth creationist, et cetera. But um, there's verses that say like all the nations that don't come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles will be in big, big trouble sort of thing. And I think most people interpret that as being applicable to, because he goes on to talk about it in the new heavens and the new earth, et cetera. Forget where that is, Isaiah, maybe towards the end of Isaiah. Uh, you know, that don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I personally have to interpret Paul as saying that those were temporary, uh, you know, commandments listed in ordinances until the time of Reformation, I think in Hebrews 9 and then Colossians 2, you know, Christ is the once for all sacrifice. His body is like replacing those festival uh, sacrifices. And so if we read these things in the prophets that have an application to our future, even now after the new covenant has come, how are we to interpret that? I mean, is he going to bring back the sacrifices that Christ fulfilled? These are questions that make me think maybe they're writing in terms of what the things represent in Christ. And then now that we have the light of the new covenant coming to pass, we should interpret the purpose of those and, you know, cause they're shadows, right? I mean, I, that's one of the problems I have with dispensational ideas is like the idea that, it's going to bring back the temple and like different people have very different ideas about that when they, when they interpret it that way. But it seems to me it's not inappropriate to think we would interpret it through the light of the cross and what they represented until the time of reformation, which would be the first century. What do you make of that? So I don't want to get too political, but okay. So when I was, when I visited Israel, um, obviously there was a lot of of, uh, Jews at the wailing wall praying. And so I asked them, what are you praying for? I was just curious. What are you praying for? And the, the funniest answer I got was that um, one of the Scud missiles that are launched at us hit the Dome of the Rock and oh, wipe wow. it off the, the map. And that way we can um, rebuild our temple. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, so what will happen if you rebuild your temple? And... Will you reinstitute the sacrifices? And then they started debating each other. And it was like half of them were saying yes. The other half were saying, no, we now realize the purpose of those things. And it's more about prayer and a personal relationship with God. Whereas the other half were saying, absolutely, we're going to start the sacrifices up again. Um, when that time comes. Dan, you got You guys, you got to check out. I did. I read a a secondary source article on, and it's, I think it's an argument I never heard Christians use, but it's the same kind of thing. In the Talmud, which I think was written, you know, three or 400 years after the first century or whatever, somewhere around there, they're, they're writing in, it's, it's Talmud Yoma 39b. And they're saying, they're, they're reporting that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, 30, 31 AD, which is when I date Jesus' crucifixion. And they're obviously not in support of Christ being the Messiah, right? And they're talking about these signs God was giving them to show that the temple was going to be destroyed. And so I think a lot of Jews have argued 
like, oh, you know, like those verses that say, I don't want your sacrifices. I want repentance, you know, and, the, and they're very contextual passages, right? I don't think God didn't want them to do the sacrifices he instituted, obviously, right? But they'll use verses like that. And they mention all these interesting anomalies, like 40 years before the temple was destroyed on the Day of Atonement, they cast lots for the goat for Yahweh, which was the blood sacrifice. And it came up in the left hand every year or the westernmost uh, light on the menorah would not stay lit on the day of atonement or what on Yom Kippur. And uh, the scarlet thread no longer turned white when they put it around the goat's neck after doing the um, sacrifices 40 years before the temple is destroyed. This is what they're putting in the Talmud, Yoma 39b. And I'm thinking that is, you know, and it's and so that's probably there's that's why they're arguing because they have to justify not having, you know, their sacrifices. And it's really fascinating. Uh, how they deal with that. And it sounds like that's what you witnessed. That's very interesting. Anyways, that read yeah. that it's really cool. Right, right. So, t- I mean, just tying it into scripture and I'm not going to take a hard and fast hand, but um, I mean, there are in the latter half of Ezekiel, I want to say like Ezekiel, like around, I can't remember which chapter. It's in the second half of Ezekiel. There's, uh, I think about three Ezekiel. chapters. A description of the of a temple and it is very a very detailed description of the temple and the description does not match the second temple it doesn't match the first temple either so what oh, yeah, ezekiel was a temple right they call it yeah so so yeah right some some will say there's a prophesied third temple that's going to be rebuilt now um I don't think dispensationalism hangs in the balance on that point, whether there's going to be this third temple or not. But, um, I mean, I, I, I won't be surprised if, if at one point, they, you know, that there's a third temple that's built there. Well, and people the, run the, the gamut temple. on that, too. They think some say it's going to be a literal temple that God wants and then legitimate because it'll be a memorial. I think that's problematic. Others say, no, there has to be a temple, according to Daniel. Etc. in Revelation, but it's going to be a false temple. And uh, and then it's like, well, is, it, is the Antichrist going to make an abomination in a false temple? Or is he going to, how does that, you know, it's hard to work out, but there's all sorts of different ways of understanding that. But it's usually that a literal idea that there must be a literal temple. Then you've got New Testament theology about we are the temple. How should we apply that and take that literally? It's so, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, so I guess what's your take on the, um, the, the the temple that's described in the, the latter half of Ezekiel, um, Jamie, I guess. If I remember, it seems like it doesn't exactly match the one in Revelation either. Is that maybe true? I don't remember. So I haven't looked at it really closely. So I guess I have this presumption because I haven't studied it very closely that it must, maybe it has some sort of non-literal meaning. Maybe it has, because I take all the tabernacle stuff to be, have typology related to the ministry of Christ fulfilled in Christ in the book of Hebrews and that sort of idea that because it was made after the pattern of the one in heaven and you have that in the Old Testament here and there that the heavenly temple and Christ reigning from there some people take that to be literal so yeah I'm not sure I guess yeah go ahead well so actually I'll, I'll respond to that but I, before I do actually um turn fam what about yourself um the description of the temple in the second half of Ezekiel um, what do you make of that? I don't think I have a dogmatic opinion on it. I I seem to recall looking at it a few years ago and concluding that it was the same. The measurements that are mentioned in Ezekiel would correspond to what Jesus actually saw 
in Jerusalem. That's what I recall thinking. And I remember talking about uh, talking about it with someone and someone suggesting to me that it wasn't, uh, that, the, that the measurements are different from that. And I don't remember the reasons why the person said it. And I don't, I don't remember, you know, ultimately I just don't, I don't have a dogmatic opinion. I have an idea in my head, but. Uh, That's exactly but, um, what I would say. What you just described, like somebody pointed out that it was not applicable to the, what's already come to pass. And so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so anyways, we could go. Uh, oh, oh, so I, I guess I did want to um, briefly comment on your point. So, okay, so let's talk about what the purpose of the temple and the sacrifices were in Old Testament times. I mean, I think they prefigured Christ. You know, they were the shadow, not the substance, obviously. So, but the shadow looks kind of like the substance, you know, because it's a shadow of the substance, right? And so it's it's symbolic of what Christ was going to do, but people at that time didn't understand it. I think it also served a secondary purpose in terms of like putting, you know, kind of a, um, uh, a an identity to the uh, people of God at that time. It was just part of who they were and what made them distinctly distinctly a nation that uh, worship God and that was was part of uh, God's people. And in that sense, it served as sort of a perimeter fence in that, you know, if people didn't participate in that system, then um, they were outcasts and, you know, outside outsiders. And if they did, even if they were Gentiles, they had to go through like a lot of steps to become like, like Jews. And so it was, it was kind of part of their national identity. Um, and I don't even doubt that the, um, you know, like the, that it, it, it worked for like physical death, like the death penalty and stuff like that. Like they, they, they use the atonement for those purposes in terms of the legal codes that uh, are described in Deuteronomy. Some of them have a death penalty and that sort of thing. So um, there's certainly that aspect as well um, that, the purpose of the law, the, the purpose of those uh, sacrifices serve. Now, um, fast forwarding, what could it mean after Christ has come if they re reinstitute it? Does that automatically mean that no, it has to be some type of, um, you know, outside of Christianity? Well, not necessarily. So, for, to, you know, at least I'm open to the idea that it could just be symbolic of what Christ did and they, that it would be done in um, memorial to what, yes, to yes. what, what Christ has done rather than looking forward to what Christ done. So in, in that standpoint, and could it be also be a part of a national identity in the future? Yeah, I think so. So the main things that it did before, I don't, I don't see an inherent reason why they couldn't do it again. If somebody is trusting in that for their salvation, they obviously would be, lost and wrong about that based on the book of Hebrews. Um, but the, the reason why I'm hesitant to say, well, we just ended in is because Paul himself after the resurrection went to Jerusalem and there were certain individuals that were ritually unclean and in the book of Acts and, and he makes the sacrifices for them so that they'll be ritually cleansed. So, he didn't um, consider um, it anathema to do such a thing, right? <laughs> or something. If he's what's that? Do, like you said, it's not like 
yeah, I struggle yeah. with this. It's something I've been thinking about too. But like, read Hebrews nine ten. He's like, yeah, the carnal wash or the diverse washings and carnal ordinances that couldn't take away sins, and you know, and so. But yeah, he does that, and so you don't want to go too crazy with saying, oh, it would be an abomination. But at the same time, it would be if you were to do it instead of in the stead of Christ. And it seems like it would confuse yeah. to be like in support of the Jewish people making it. Make, letting them think that they're going to do that for you know for their sin issue when they need Christ. That's the problem I have with it. But I I hear you. Yeah, um, yeah, Turden fan. What what do you think about that passage where um, Paul essentially goes to the temple and uh, it goes through the uh, purification sacrifice for the people that were ritually unclean? I I don't know exactly what it entailed. I my thought was that it seems as though he is in some way participating in the worship of God through the temple. But, uh, and I would expect there'd be some kind of animal sacrifice involved in that. Um, so that, that's sort of my general thought on that. I, I do not, uh, I don't recall whether it explicitly says anything about him actually uh, having any sacrifices, but he I mean, he also went to the Jewish synagogues at the time, but not to not to detract from the fellowship of the believers. But you know, he went there to debate. So uh, did. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know whether the you know it's a promise that was it was a, to fulfill a vow, if I remember right. Right? Wasn't that what it says? Right. Yeah, that's right. So isn't, I don't know. Isn't the narrative too that they're like calling him saying he's just absolutely against the law and he's like wanting to show them that it's not quite it's not quite what he's saying or I've heard people use that uh, explanation or something. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. There. Yeah, that uh there's there was something about that as well. Uh I I do I don't recall though the detail uh right now. And I don't I don't see any uh, any divine authorization to rebuild the temple. So if somebody did rebuild the temple, I just I wouldn't have any particular legitimacy. Now, if someone rebuilt the temple and God sent down fire from heaven and restarted the sacrifices, that would be a powerful counterpoint to my argument. But I don't. It says the Antichrist is going to draw down fire from heaven before men and fool maybe even the elect if they. <laughs> Nobody, sorry. Remember that verse? I think it's in there. I hear you. Yeah. Uh, I would be, I have a, uh, a counterpoint slash question for, I guess, for you, Dan. Sure. So I was in, uh, let me see where it says. In Second Kings uh, 1723, it says that, the uh, let's see if I, it says until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Of course, that's unto the day of whenever the inspired editor put that in there. But the uh, the point is that they they were removed, and there was not unlike the nation of Judah. There wasn't a return from exile for the people taken away by the Assyrians. 
my question for you then is, is that are you envisioning not only a restoration of the nation of Judah, but also of the nation of Israel? Either oh, yeah. So including all the tribes? Yes, all 12 tribes. Yes, absolutely. And of course, that's the big question. How How is God going to do that in a resurrection of a valley of dead bones is the best explanation for it. But because, you know, the 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 10 northern tribes, I guess, are, I mean, whether they're, well, well we don't have to get into that too much, but it's, it's, it seems that they, um, it's a lot harder to trace anything back at to, to the 10 northern tribes because of the dispersion. But, um, you know, in, in the resurrection, that obviously fixes the, uh, the problem. And then you have the 12 tribes again. Um, but actually, I would ask you the same question. Is in the Old Testament, at least in the prophets, when the, when the North and the South split, there are bunches of Old Testament prophecies of a reunification of the 12 tribes. Other than in the millennium, how is that going to happen? I, what could you give me one example of the of what you're talking about? Um, I, I'm not isn't there a prof- isn't isn't there a prophecy where a guy has a belt and then he cuts the belt in half and he says, like like this belt, I'm going to reconnect the you know, you know the tribes of the nation of Israel. Like, I, I want to say there's something like that explicit in where, where is that? Uh, I can't remember the reference off the top of my head, but man, I, I have this specific passage in mind. But there's bunches of them. I, I, I can dig them up. Um, uh, Haven't some people said that this is at least somewhat happening in the first century when Pentecost falls and all that? That there's people from the different tribes that have come back to. Am I, am I mistaken there? And that's isn't that why they're like they speak in tongues and stuff because. The, the dispersed nations of Israel had gone into the nations and, and they were speaking in the other languages that they were speaking or something, something to that effect, maybe? Or is that wrong? I, I could be wrong. I'm not sure. I, th- I think there's a sense in which that's true. But there's also a, a pretty clear sense in which the, the 10 tribes are not operating like distinct tribes anymore. I mean, because yeah, they're, they're, they're so decimated. Either, right. So I guess. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. so. Anyways, I think the short answer to your question, Turd Fan, is that in the resurrection, uh, yeah, the twelve tribes will be reunited as one. So, I the the kind of follow up to that is why bring back Judah, but not bring back Israel for that in that uh, return from exile? Why only bring back one of the two kingdoms? It's not like the Israelites, not the not that the ten tribes are less descended from Abraham than the than Benjamin and Judah and, and the Levites. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think I have a I don't think I have a good answer. Um, I mean, I could I I would have to just be creative and kind of off the cuff rather than give you something solid. But I, I still go ahead. But I but I would still point to. The descriptions of the twelve tribes operating together in Revelation—that's that's, that's wh- wh- where I feel much more solid about it. Is that they're going to be there? They're going to be working together in the in the um, through the tribulation and then into the millennium. 
Dan, can you can you define dispensationalism for me? Because I'm not sure the things you're saying I would even disagree with. So I'm thinking I'm wondering if some people would think I'm like partially dispensational in that sense. I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is for sure. Exactly like between in your mind, between dispensationalists and covenant theology, I guess. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure. The best way I can describe it is a hermeneutic of, you know, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, you know, that sort of thing. So we apply that to prophecy as well. We apply that to the promises in to, you know, throughout the covenants. And so we tend to take things more literally in terms of both analyzing the covenants and in analyzing prophecy. And so I think if, you know, if frankly, like let's say Turd and Fan and I went verse by verse through Revelation, I'd be looking for in each and every case to try to find a way to take it as literally as I could, recognizing that sometimes I'm going to have to spiritualize things. Whereas I think Turd and Fan would be looking to spiritualize as much as possible and take as little or take a lot less than I would literally. So I think there's a humongous hermeneutical difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Um, With respect to the covenants, I think that the covenant to Abraham was unconditional. And with respect to the right to the land, not not the enjoyment of the land, but the right to the land, that, that aspect was unconditional and perpetual, and that God will give it back to the nation of Israel, and that the I would read the promises of Israel as being a kingdom that is essentially running the whole world. It, those promises in the... Um, in the prophets, I take literally, and they just haven't been fulfilled yet, but they will soon, or they they will at some point. Um, so that there's going to be... I'm a hybrid of that. That's interesting. I'm just like, yeah, that's cool. I get it. I think there's going to be. I think the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled with Christ on a literal throne on the earth forever, and th- that will fulfill the promises given to Abraham literally. But then I'm also going to say, I don't think we should distinguish Israel from the church as people do so abruptly. So for me, that's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm still learning. Okay. So I guess that would be another de- defining difference is a um, more of a brighter distinction between Israel and the church, I suppose. Um, okay. Anyways, I, I'm not sure how well I did at defining it. But honestly, I think to me, the core difference is the hermeneutical difference. Everything, a lot of it is going to flow after that. Um, but I honestly think that, you know, myself and a covenant theologian, if we just sat down and just read through Revelation, we're just going to be on different planets by that point. And where does it start? It starts with those covenants. How do we understand these covenants? Consider the history of the church. Like during the Reformation, which I am a proud advocate to. I think that's a move of God, obviously, somewhat historicist in my interpretation of Daniel. But um, it seems like, um, think of how would they, I mean, Israel wasn't even, I mean, they were gone as far as they knew. 
I mean, they're just into the nations, just totally mixed in. Israel hasn't been come back. It's just Palestine, you know? Like, what are they supposed to, how are they supposed to understand the Bible? I guess just being faithful to a literal interpretation, but you can see where, with because of the language of Paul, why they would, why most of that Reformation theology would be what it is, I would argue. I mean, and what does that say about, does that, is that a reason to think it may not be, shouldn't be taken literally, or should, were they being unfaithful and spiritualizing it? So these are questions that are interesting to wonder about, if you get what I'm saying, I don't know. Right. I understand. Um, yeah, no, that's right. So um, I don't know if we uh, if we should go through some comments here and wrap up. It, actually, no, I, I want to give you also an opportunity to address these things. Fan. If you want to take a stab at defining covenant theology, I'd be very interested to hear your thumbnail sketch of covenant theology. So covenant theology is... I think the, I mean, it might be hard to fully distinguish it from its rivals, but I, I would tend to think of it in terms of God's treat, uh, God's treatment of humanity is broadly considered under the covenant of works and the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption, depending on how you look, you know, the same covenant, just two different names to the same covenant. And then there's various other lesser covenantal dealings that God has throughout time, but either we're under the covenant of works, which is the law, like uh, Adam was in the garden where he, he had no reason to die, except that he ate the forbidden fruit. And now all humanity is under the sentence of death and therefore in need of salvation, which is obtained through the covenant of grace by which those who trust in Christ for salvation in the, time before Christ came, it was not, it was in a veiled way, but now it's openly uh, in, in Christ for salvation that people trust. And that that's the way of escape. And then underneath that, then the dealings of God with the people of Israel are understood in a, as having, I think in, in many ways, a much different significance from the idea that God has had many different ways, the, kind of that broad breakdown into those two categories then leads to uh, kind of treating the covenant of Abraham as an explicit, the uh, giving of the covenant of grace as to he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness before circumcision enters in. And then this, in an administration of the covenant of grace, uh, through circumcision, but with that circumcision and the moral law being given on Sinai as a picture of that covenant of works, which illustrates the need for the covenant of grace, which is still in force throughout that time period. And then in the New Testament, there's a new administration of this covenant of grace, but now in its final completion, com completed form. There's not some further uh, covenant to come afterwards, and there's not something that's going to supplant the covenant of grace but that that's kind of God's dealings. Other than that, my only comment is on the question of literal versus non-literal. I, I would probably, I think I would be right to say that I, you would be the first of us to go to something that would be less literal. 
when we're walking through Revelation. Not that you wouldn't have more things that you would kind of view as more literal, but just I think you would be the first to make that jump, not me, in uh, in Revelation, in verse 1. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, what uh, We should have that conversation one day. I'm sure that would be a lot of fun, but... Um, yeah, yeah. No, just I mean, let that my general point, though? <laughs> uh, I... I think, actually, I think how we interpret verse one is going to color a lot of the rest of how we feel. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fair enough. But, I mean, you might be right in terms of, like, the amount of places where you would try to, you not try to, you would view things on more, uh, no, this is something that is going to happen on the terms described. This is a, a vision of the future kind of thing versus... Uh, ways I would take it. I think that I think overall that's not uh, not too far off, or maybe not off at all. I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I kind of talked over somebody. I wanted to ask you guys one or two questions really fast if you kept time. Just really said, you said works uh, and grace, and I don't have a problem with that. I would just say, do, would you guys define yourselves? Because uh, you know those debates on on standing for truth have come up a few times, and I found them very interesting. Where is it grace plus or faith plus works in the old covenant? And now it's just faith. I don't think that's true. I think the animal sacrifices were a step in because by faith in repentance, you trusted God to remove your sins. Like he said, he would through the sacrifices, but you were repentant. And that kind of fits with the whole, he liked the smell of their, of this fat burning. And then other times he was, he didn't accept their sacrifices because they weren't doing it in repentance and trust and faith. So I look at it like it's always been by faith. And then that, comes out in your works in that you're trusting God. And I'm just curious if you guys define which side of that stand do you guys uh, define yourselves? Was it always just by faith, righteousness by faith, and or was it different in the past? So from my side, very strongly, always by grace alone through faith alone. And, and from my standpoint, uh, after the fall, so from the moment of that Adam sinned, it's only by uh, by grace through faith is the only way for salvation, and that there's no other way. Now, Adam, before the fall, didn't have a need for salvation, per se, because he didn't yet have condemnation. But, but the only way of salvation has ever been uh, by grace through faith. And I reject the idea of the new perspective on Paul, which kind of suggests that there was a whether or not it was right that the the orthodox view in Judaism at the time was that you are saved by works. I, I completely reject that. Um, oh, because the new perspective says they didn't think that. It seems to me that I'm torn on that. It seems like they were they were self-righteous, certainly, but was the old system by works. It seems to me that's wrong, I would say. Although <laughs> that's complicated, I guess. But you're talking about N.T. right, right? That sort of idea. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I I think Wright was wrong on that particular point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And thanks for having me, you guys. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be invited. And uh, I look up to you guys the way you uh, conduct yourselves. I'm trying to let you influence me, and so it means a lot to me that you uh, let me do this. So thanks. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate you reaching out. And uh, it's been good having a nice uh, nice chat with you uh, in in person. So. Um, thank you for joining. All right, guys. See you later. Thanks.
thanks for the conversation for sure. Alrighty then. Um, I do how... agree with Michelle's point here. Hebrews 11 is the answer to that by faith. Yeah. Uh, I agree with uh, Mr. Burke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, inter always an interesting way of putting things. Yeah. Uh, so I know there were a ton of comments. Some I think there were some people who were unhappy because uh, Jamie is SDA. Just having him on here doesn't mean I endorse Ellen White or the James White that was associated with the SDA or anything like that. It's not an uh, endorsement of him because he was here. I actually am not that familiar with what SDA folks believe aside from not uh, observing the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. But I, I'm... Uh, someone in the chat is saying that they're a cult. I don't. I I just don't know the details. I'm not. I'm not trying to endorse anybody or say it doesn't matter or anything like that. Just so that we we're clear on that. And although we talk about dispensational, and I put a little tag on here since some people didn't join at the beginning, I just want to reiterate: I'm not dispensational. That's not the point of this. I I, I feel like I should say that because a ton of people think you're Calvinist because we have this conversations in Calvinism. So. I just, I don't know. I okay, yeah. I don't know enough about the SDA um, to comment on that. I didn't. Uh, okay, interesting. I'll I'll leave I'll leave that alone. Um, as far as people thinking of me as a Calvinist, uh, I, you know, I I don't know what to say. I can't be. I can't win them all. <laughs> Eventually. No, <laughs> no, the opposite. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Yeah, just uh, yeah. No, I will. I I could throw some jabs, but I'm just. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a keep some powder dry. So. Okay. Well, it was nice talking with you as always. Yeah, I, I do appreciate it, and uh, I do appreciate the many people who commented. Uh, going back through in order, uh, Michelle, Michael, Discerner, Kevin. We had a lot of comments today. G Atlas, Paul, uh, Jamie commented and appeared on the show. Slam. And, uh, oh, excuse me. Uh, and also Truth Charles, Defenders. Charles and Ryan. Yep. And Truth Defenders. Yep. Uh, Strict Baptist. Yep. And GMW, Jason as well. Patrick. Uh, also commented to say dispensationalism is satanic, just letting you know. But also the dispensationalism is for Democrats. So I think you can probably guess where he thinks what, what he thinks about uh, Democrats uh, based on those two comments. So this is not a political show. I'm not, uh, this is not a stumping for Biden or anybody else. Uh, I think we should be respectful to our, uh, to our leaders and uh, this isn't the show for my my own political views. So just leaving that out of your way. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so Samuel, um, man, wow. We've, this is this is great to see. This is really cool, Jason. Yeah, there's so many uh, so many folks that uh, stop by. So that's that's wonderful. Really appreciate it. Um, all right, I I guess that's uh that's it on my side. 
So thank you very much, and God be with you. Yeah, also with you. Okay, take care.